This episode is brought to you by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Learn more at bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You may have figured out by now that our producer, Bianca Rego's mind works in mysterious ways sometimes. Take this next story, for instance. You may have seen it in the news. It's about a 76-year-old woman in Ecuador who was found to be alive during her wake. They heard knocking from inside the coffin. Now, that would be a heck of a wake, wouldn't it? Anyway, it got us thinking about stories like this, which do pop up from time to time, right? And it turns out that back in the day, this was not entirely uncommon. So much so that coffins were even designed to deal with this. Yes, that is true. Now, Dr. Jan Bondesen is a senior lecturer and consultant rheumatologist at the Cardiff University School of Medicine and is the author of Buried Alive and joins us now this morning to talk about it. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Dr. Bondison, how did you come to write a book about being buried alive? Well, I wrote a book called Cabinet of Medical Curiosities in 1997. It was published by W.W. W. Norton in New York, America. And um, after there had been a TV documentary about people being buried alive, which was one of the chapters in the book, they wanted a book about uh, the risk, uh, history of the science of death and the risk of being buried alive by mistake. And the book was published in 2001. Okay, but what is the risk of being buried alive? Because for a lot of people, as you probably understand, this is a terrifying possibility. Well, there are two kinds of news nowadays. There's real news and there is monkey news. There's what? And the real news are usually to be relied upon, but the monkey news are less so. And there's been quite a few monkey stories about people waking up in their coffins or knocking on coffin lids or um, being found to have been buried alive. So it's one of these urban myths that's still um, with us today. Are they urban myths or can these actually be traced to some kind of reality? Like, does it actually happen? Well, in my book, I, I tried to figure out whether any person had ever, been had ever been buried alive. And there are some case reports from the 19th century that may actually be true. And there is an uh, a, a old shoemaker from Germany who was found to knock on the coffin lid when, it was, uh, when they threw the earth down upon it, six feet uh, under. And they, they, then they uh, disinterred him, and he was found to look just like a few days old corpse. So he may well have been buried alive. And there was also the case of a woman in France during a cholera epidemic who was uh, also found to um, knock on the coffin lid uh, when, um, they dis when they, uh, during funeral. And uh, during cholera, 
during the cold stage of cholera, people can be surprisingly death-like but still have the opportunity to uh, survive. Huh. Uh, so that's another one. Okay, but let, let me ask yeah, you then. That may well is have it, happened. Is it but true? Today we should feel safe. Okay, I hope so. I would hope so. Is it true, though, that there was a time, like you talked about the time of cholera, that that coffins had any kind of mechanism to deal with this possibility? Yes, 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 yes. Well, it's, uh, we can start from the beginning. In the 1740s, there was a French doctor named Winslow and his associate Bruyer, and they said that only true sign of death was putridity, of putrefaction. So you were not dead until you were both putrid and death. So they suggested that there was something called uh, waiting mortuaries to be constructed all over Europe. Waiting mortuaries or Leichenhäuser where people could, uh, dead people could lie and uh, putrefy until they could safely be diagnosed as dead, and then they could be buried. But all, not all people liked being uh, incubated in such a loathsome uh, environment. So they decided that they should build special coffins where you could uh, make yourself known if you were still alive. So you could pull a string, and then the bell would ring in a special uh, tower across the... Like a, like a signal, like you could send a signal that, hey, don't bury me, I'm still alive. Signal of some kind, or it was even, uh, you could even push a button and then a rocket would be sent off. Or you could... uh, um, Dr. Bondison, this seems like an extreme reaction to something that you say doesn't actually happen very often. Is it more about our fear, do you think, of having this happen? Yes, that's quite true. It's more about the fear of being buried alive. It's what's called the worst uh, uh, nightmare that could even happen to you. Or the the greatest... uh, urban fear of uh, the human life and the same was true in the 19th century so you had security coffins where you could um, make yourself known if you had been buried alive and you had to flag you could put a string and then a flag would start waving or a bell would start ringing and then there were an air hole so you could live forever in there so that was probably not very productive, in a way. <laughs> so the not. security coffins were never a success, although there were coffins like that constructed in the United States. I I would actually consider buying that if people have that deep fear. Uh, Dr. Bondison, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about our housing situation right now because, you know, dealing with encampments where people who don't have a home are are living in an area, that's not just a Vancouver issue. It's not just a, a Surrey issue. In Abbotsford, it's also been an ongoing situation, particularly in the Lonzo Road area. But this week, the province said they would work directly with the city and the community members to help move people out of that area. 
But where will they go? Well, that's the complicated part of the equation. So let's talk about these issues out in the Fraser Valley. Ravi Kalon joins us now, BC's Minister of Housing, to talk more about this. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Now, can you explain to us, so what is the solution that's been found or that you're working towards with the Lonzo Road encampment? Well, we had uh, about a year and a half ago, 100 people there. Uh, so that's a significant challenge. Uh, and we've been working away, staff, with the city of uh, Abbotsford, as well as BC Housing, have been working to find shelter or homes for individuals. We're down to about 15 people now. Uh, what we've announced is that uh, two-part. One is that uh, we've uh, given notice to individuals there that they must vacate. Uh, right now, we have about 40 vehicles uh, that are there, um, but many of them are not being used. Uh, only a few actually have people living in them. Uh, and so people have been notified that they have to vacate, and we are working with individuals over the next two weeks to get them into shelter spaces, get them into um, uh, market rent with rental supports, um, and other, uh, other ways to get people housing so that we can use that site, clear that site up, and then we're actually going to put uh, 50 spots uh, shelter spots on that site with modulars. And so um, we're not displacing people for the sake of displacing them. We're actually going to use that site for more shelter spaces for others that might need it. Okay, but is there enough room to even temporarily move them out? Like, where are they going to go? Uh, well, we started yesterday. Uh, so we had we moved one individual into a shelter space. Um, we've got a couple of individuals we're working with who uh, want to stay in their RVs but are looking for a place to move their RVs to. Uh, and it, so it'll depend on individuals. Uh, some have said, yeah, we'll move to the shelter because we have shelter spaces available, uh, but we don't want to do that until the last minute. And so uh, we're not trying to force people. We're not wanting to push people too much, but we have given them uh, notice that they need to move in, uh, in the coming weeks. And again, we've been working very hard with the city to try to find more shelter spaces, to create shelter spaces. Uh, we bought two motels, old motels that were uh, on sale uh, in Abbotsford, uh, where we've also moved individuals. So we've been looking for all types of solutions, whether it's buy motels, because that's the quickest, uh, and get people in, uh, or whether that's to actually build shelter and supportive housing in communities. Right, but the building of the shelter and supportive communities, that's going to take some time, though, isn't it? It takes time, and uh, you know we have uh, right now uh, 470 spots that we're building right now in Abbotsford. Some some supportive housing, uh, some shelter spaces, and then some just low-income housing spaces. So uh, you know, with all those units coming online, we know the the need is just you know even bigger than that. Uh, you know, I think that the challenge we have is we're actually when it comes to building uh, affordable housing, we're, we're 20 years behind. Uh, you know, there just was not investment being made in this space. Uh, and, and now we're, we're paying the price for it. Is there a concern, though, that people will just move elsewhere in, in the community and then you're just kind of pushing that problem somewhere else? Well, that's why we're trying to get people into shelters. That's why we're trying to get people into actual, some more stable housing. Uh, you know, there will be some people uh, who decide that no matter what, they're not going to a shelter, they're not going to uh, go into supportive housing, uh, and uh, they prefer to live in spaces where, quite frankly, there's no rules. Um, and, and that's a, a real challenge for us. It's something we grapple with uh, in communities, not only in BC. I mean, I talked to my colleagues. This is an issue coming out of the pandemic in um, all jurisdictions across the country. Uh, had conversations with colleagues in California and Washington State and Oregon, 
uh, you know, every community is dealing with this coming out of the pandemic. So we need to do two parts. One, uh, more systemic solutions, which is build more affordable housing for people because it's just, um, you know, it's just a tough market out there, not enough housing available. And then secondly, we need to have spaces for supportive housing for individuals who have more needs than just housing. They have mental health supports needed, uh, addiction supports needed. And so all that needs to happen simultaneously. Okay, so if that process is starting now, how how long do you think before the community can see the results of that? Well, the, the process isn't just starting right now. It's actually been happening for, for a few years now. Uh, and so, as I said, in Lonzo, they had 100 people. Uh, we've been able to get 85 of those 100 people, um, or at least 80 of those people, uh, supports uh, to get into other types of housing. And we know the need continues to grow over time. And so the, the work has been ongoing, but specifically uh, what we're uh, what we announced as part of the solution on the Longo site is that we're also going to be, um, Abbotsford will be one of the first places that we're going to launch our hard teams. Uh, too often what happens is uh, healthcare supports are provided by the health authority. Um, we have within the province supports, BC Housing has supports, but the, the people uh, all, uh, always change. So, you know, there's no real consistency of who's talking to individuals. And what we've learned is that building that trust is the key part in order to get people the supports they need. And so now uh, we will have a dedicated team of individuals that will be the same people that go and visit, whether it's health, whether it's housing related. And that dedicated team is there going to be building the relationships, building the trust with individuals, and then getting them the right supports they need. Because if that trust isn't there, then you can try to put an individual in a place, but then they just, uh, they'll leave because they, they don't feel comfortable. Right. You said that will be one of the places where you launch a hard team. So when will that happen? Uh, the team is already um, uh, in, like our team is already in conversation with the city to make sure that we can coordinate it in a good way. Uh, and so I suspect in the, in the coming weeks, we'll be able to get our health professionals there, mental health professionals there, working with all the not-for-profit providers uh, on the ground uh, to have uh, meetings about how this should be implemented, how it should, how it should work. It's, it's not the same solution in every community. Uh, some communities have uh, additional gaps, some have uh, additional needs. And so that conversation has already started. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. A lot of concern recently about what the Vancouver School Board has been up to with their future planning. They seem to be concerned that perhaps they're not going to need as many school buildings, that perhaps some of them are superfluous. They could sell some of that land off. 
but are they using the right numbers? They're projecting a decline of approximately 5,000 students in enrollment at Vancouver Elementary and Secondary Schools over the next 10 years. But that is not what BC's you know, statistical modeling agency and even the education ministry are expecting for the Vancouver School District. So what what is going on here? Well, joining us now is Dr. Michael Hooper, who's an Associate Professor of Community and Regional Planning at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Hooper, thanks for being with us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So what are the numbers then for Vancouver? Are more kids going to be, you know, needing to go to school here or not? Well, that's a great question. I think one thing that's really obvious is there's a huge uh, departure now between the numbers being used or projected by the VSB and the Ministry of Education. Over the next 10 years, there's now an almost 15,000 student difference. So Ministry of Education calling for 10,000 more uh, students, VSB saying there's going to be 5,000 less. Now, what's important here is that the VSB's numbers, no one's really clear how they produce them. They're, they use a proprietary formula, and most of their planning happens over a relatively short term. Their long-term plan really only projects out seven years, and it precludes consideration of most forms of development. So this is a huge problem, I think, in terms of planning practice. Generally, long-term plans look at 30 to 50 years. If you look at the city of Vancouver, metro Vancouver, any of the First Nations, they're they're looking at 30 to 50 years. Uh, the Vancouver School Board is looking at seven years at the longest right now, and their projections preclude anything that's currently not moving to construction. So really, they're, they're visualizing a future city that's really one of decline because that's the way their model is structured. Other agencies are city, seeing a city of incredible growth, and you only have to look around, see the cranes, realize that we're in a massive densification push right now. And whether that densification succeeds in making a livable city, especially for families, is going to hinge on the amenities that are available. Right. And one of the key amenities is schools. And there's this huge um, problem where the Vancouver School Board is really not planning in tandem with any other agency. And while other agencies plan for vast growth, the VSB is planning for decline. And based on those projections, which I think most people find very uh, dubious, is actually making short-term plans to sell off schools, uh, whether it's uh, the closure of Sir Guy or Carlton, the uh, sale of part of the playing field of Bruce School, the closure of Queen Elizabeth Annex, the sale of uh, large parts of Fleming School, etc., which are all based on another secret planning document which needs to be made public, the land asset strategy. Right. I don't understand why we seem to make this mistake repeatedly. Like when I was exactly. in high school in the city of Vancouver, uh, it, it was in a kind of a shrink mode, right? Like there were empty classrooms, empty rows of lockers. But, you know, five years later, the school was packed to overflowing. So is it not exactly. always the way it goes? And why do we make decisions thinking that, oh, it's never going to be different? Well, that is a huge question, right? And that's why long-term planning needs to look over the long-term. This idea that you can make long-term decisions over the very, very short term is inherently problematic. It's not how planning agencies work. Now, and there is one of the main problems that the VSB is not seeing itself as a planning agency. Now, they actually control $6.2 billion worth of land and schools. And that is actually that has higher value than the GDP of 45 different countries on earth. So it's not just that the VSB is in the business of education. They are one of the most powerful and important planning agencies in the province, if not Western Canada. But they're not seeing themselves that way, and they're planning over the short term, and they're not taking account of the wild unpredictability of growth in Vancouver. So they proposed just a few years ago closing 12 schools. 
The trustees didn't go forward with that. But now if you look at those 12 schools, almost all of them are in super high enrollment areas, right? Because the city is growing rapidly and is also unpredictable. You don't sell off your assets over the short term. Like unless you're planning on downsizing, that could be a good strategy in Vancouver. But as far as we know, the Vancouver you know, isn't planning on relocating elsewhere in the province, right? So you shouldn't be liquidating your assets. But this isn't really rocket science, you know, because you look at what happened with Olympic Village, you look at what happened in those areas where you lots of notice that these neighborhoods were going to be built. And did we think that no children were ever going to live in this because there's no school there? There's still no school there. That's an ongoing issue. It almost feels like, you know, oh, Vancouver built all the schools that Vancouver was going to build however many years ago, and that's it. Right. And the way they're thinking about these schools, I think, is problematic. Like this, this recent plan to subdivide off the playing fields of Bruce School, an at-capacity elementary school in East Vancouver, subdivide off a big part of the playing field and sell it. It fails to understand that a playing field is more than just excess land, which is the way it's being framed by the VSB. That is vital infrastructure for the city. It's green space for a rapidly growing neighborhood. Um, So framing school land as excess land or surplus land, I think, is really problematic. And I think if you want to highlight just how far the projections can go off, if you look at Sanok, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the Squamish First Nation project at the foot of the Burrard Bridge, very exciting project that's going to see approximately 11,000 people move into that neighborhood. And Squamish First Nation has worked out supply uh, and service agreements with the city for fire services, water, sewerage absolutely vital to make sure that densification works and is livable. Meanwhile, the VSB, who is operating in a fundamentally different silo, in 10 years, they predict that the nearest elementary school, Henry Hudson, will have 101 fewer students. So you'll have 11,000 people move to the neighborhood, and Squamish First Nation says families will be a big part of that. Meanwhile, the VSB, their projections, which are clearly wrong, say, well, Henry Hudson will be in a state of radical decline at that point. And this just highlights the, the challenge here of using these projections yeah. um, to sell off vital public assets. So many questions about this. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. At, you can actually hear in person this weekend, L Cool J is going to be performing with the BC Lions in their home opener. But you know what? Let's find out how the Lions are doing this morning. Amar Doman joins us now, owner of the team. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, first off, can I ask, how is Phil Norman doing? You know, Phil is resting comfortably now in the hospital. He's alert um, and everything is stable, everything checked out. And so they're just going to keep him there a little bit longer uh, just to make sure everything's okay. And we had quite a square yesterday out in Surrey. Yeah, it sure sounded like it. Okay, so we hope all the best for him. Please send him our best wishes. Uh, We know the Lions have a big game coming up this weekend and it's going to be quite the kickoff to the season, isn't it? Well, it is. We've got uh, lots going on starting even tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock. The full TSN anchor crew is coming out from Toronto to do the weekend anchoring from Vancouver. So at 4 o'clock, Terry Fox Plaza, we expect a big crowd. We've got a live band, famous players playing. And then Saturday at 11, we're going to kick off the festivities before the LL Cool J show at 3 and then kick off against the Elks at 4. So we've got uh, an action-packed couple of days coming up. Okay, and you want a big crowd for this because you've got LL Cool J kicking things off. Absolutely. The crowd is, uh, I think, north of what we had last year already, and uh, the tickets are just selling daily, like massive sales. So we expect a very loud crowd, and uh, hopefully we can drown out the Edmonton quarterback. 
Okay. Do you feel like people are, I certainly feel it, like are enthusiastic about the team these days. They're feeling good about it. Absolutely. You know, I think a couple of things there, Simi, you know, number one, um, you know, the vibe is back with all of the different entertainment, but, you know, we put those things aside, the actual quality of the team has just, you know, improved dramatically. Vernon Adams has come in to take over for Nathan really well. He's come into the seat. He's comfortable. The offense is playing good. Uh, I expect Edmonton to play us tough tomorrow, but really the vibe is good and the team looks sharp. And I think we're going to be a good contender this year and go deep into the playoffs. I think so, too. Okay, so what can people expect at this first home game of the season? Well, they're going to expect, you know, first of all, Edmonton's a different team, but as far as the action around the, the stadium, you know, come early, come to the street party. We're closing the streets, Robson and Beatty, so there's a lot going on there for kids, for adults. Um, and then, of course, uh, later in the afternoon, as, as we move in, inside the building, uh, definitely uh, LL Cool J is going to rock the house there to, to kick off the season. I'm pretty excited about it myself as well, and, and I can't wait to, to just share this with all the fans. We're going to have a blast Saturday afternoon. No kidding. That's going to be awesome. Okay, so tickets are still available? There's tickets available, upper bowl pretty much only. There's some singles left, but the bottom's gone, which is great. And when that upper bowl is open, Simi, the whole vibe is different in BC Place. It just it feels better. It looks better. And people, you know, like being around people. So, you know, when the place is packed, everybody has a good time and wants to come back again. Yeah, let's see if we can fill that up. Uh, thanks so much for your time, and listen, good luck on Saturday. Thanks for having me. Go Lions. This is Mornings with Simi. So have you heard of this new criminal record suspension program? I don't think a lot of people have, and it is pretty significant. It's meant to help people with a criminal record find jobs and move on with their lives. But how does it work? Who is eligible? What kind of criminal records are we talking about here? Well, Mark Majessi is the executive director of the John Howard Society of BC and is going to help us with those answers. Mark, thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Simi. Glad to be here with you. How does this program work? Well, it's uh, a program that applies to people who have completed all of their sentencing conditions in full. And that includes probation. It includes time in incarcerated. It includes paying all fines and any surcharges. Um, so they've completed every obligation they have to the court. Um, Individuals, depending on when their first offense occurred, uh, need to wait at least three, five, or ten years after completing all those requirements, um, and they have to to have completed that time uh, crime-free. Uh, it means uh, that they haven't offended in those periods. It also means that uh, that they haven't had negative interactions with the police or charges and offenses that. Um, may have been investigated or dropped or so forth. So uh, just to emphasize, these are people who uh, have paid their dues and, and, uh, and spent their time and are long past any, any criminal involvement. Okay, so what does the suspension involve then? Like, how does this work? The suspension, um, your criminal record is stored on the Canadian Police Information Centre system. And that's a, an integrated system that collects uh, charge and, and offense and conviction information from all across the country. What the suspension does is um, remove your record from local access to, to that information. It takes it off of CPIC, as it's called, and uh, puts it on federal files. So it doesn't remove your criminal record. 
but effectively it um, it doesn't reveal it when a conventional criminal record check is done. Okay, so it would still exist for, say, law enforcement authorities to be able to access it. Yeah, yeah. What it um, what it doesn't allow access for is a conven- uh, normal criminal record check, say, by uh, an employer or by uh, a landlord. Okay, so what what is the the breadth of sort of the offenses here that could be suspended? Is it any kind of criminal record, Mark? Well, generally, people aren't eligible if they've had um, three indictable offenses, so three very serious offenses with sentences of two years or more. Uh, if they've been convicted of a sexual assault with a minor, or if uh, it's a conviction resulting in a life or indeterminate sentence. Right. So there are limitations to this. Yes. Okay. So why is this so significant? Why is it so important? Well, what's important here is, I mean, the vast majority of of people who are incarcerated will be released into the community. And that's that's just the way the criminal justice system works. Uh, we know they stand a better chance of, of successfully reintegrating into the community if they've got a place to live, if they have income, if they have good connection with their community. These are just things that, that you and I might take for granted, but uh, a criminal record is it's a roadblock to people accessing these things. Um, it, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say then, so do you think there are a, a lot of people out there who this could apply to? Well, it, it's estimated that somewhere between 1 in 7 and 1 in 10 Canadians have a criminal record. Um, we know that uh, in 2022, there were just about 11,000 applications for pardons or record suspension Canada-wide. So it's it it could apply to to quite a number of people. Right. So this will help people move on with their lives, but as you say, they have to show that they have been doing the hard work, right? Absolutely. Um, the the application process itself. I mean, it it has a lot of, of detail to it, but. Uh, it, it does check into um, a person's recent uh, activity in the last communities they've lived in the, in the past five years. Uh, it it uh, asks people to explain the, the benefits of them being pardoned for an expense and, and how it will be a benefit to, to them being able to live successfully in the community as well as to the community itself. So uh, how, and the, how many people the, are taking advantage of this? Have you had like a lot of interest in this? Well, we're in startup mode now. We we started our program May first, and and so far we're doing a lot of outreach, like like uh, what you and I are doing right now. We're we're trying to get the message out there, and we've had we've had um, a couple of dozen inquiries so far, uh, but we're expecting that to build. Do you think, Mark, that people would be surprised to find out that, you know what, there's, there's a lot of people who might be impacted by this? That's an interesting question. People might not just be aware of it, uh, so they might be, be surprised. At the same time, um, you know, I just go back to the, the key point that 
we all know that the vast majority of uh, people who are incarcerated do get released. And, you know, as a community and in support of, of people successfully reintegrating, uh, I think we, we owe it to, to ourselves and, and to the people being released to, to give them every tool they need to be successful and not to reoffend. All right. Well, Mark, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Icy Hot starts working instantly to dull the pain with the icy cool sensation. Then, the warming sensation relaxes it away. Feel the power of Icy Hot's contrast therapy. Ice works fast, heat makes it last. Icy Hot. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. At that boy off the field sort of thing and then it took a minute to realize that they were talking about our daughter but he wouldn't let it go this gentleman wouldn't let it go kept badgering and yelling demanding certification of her being female our daughter um, was crying inconsolably that's Carrie Starr. Now, you've undoubtedly heard the story of what happened, right? She's talking about what happened to her daughter, nine-year-old daughter, at a Kelowna track and field meet. That story has been making news now right across North America for the last couple of days. We've talked about it here on the show, sure, especially the need and really the hope that people will be better and nicer to each other. Because those words and what happened are damaging, they are hurtful. We're talking about a nine-year-old girl here. And one of the questions that has come up in relation to all of this is, do we consider what happened here hate speech? And what would be different about the situation if we did consider that hate speech? Well, joining us now to talk about this issue is Faye Johnston, who's the Executive Director of Wisdom to Action. Faye, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, Faye, what is Wisdom to Action? Tell me about this organization. Uh, so we are a consulting firm and social enterprise that works with nonprofits, health and social services, and governments on queer and trans inclusion and uh, weighs in fairly frequently on issues of queer and trans rights and public policy. And what did you think when you heard about this story? Uh, I have too many reactions. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I was heartbroken and unfortunately not surprised. Uh, it's devastating that any young girl gets yelled at in, in just about any context, um, but also goes to show uh, just how much anti-trans rhetoric and hysteria has taken hold. But the other side of this that is, is really difficult for me to wrangle with is uh, the outrage around this scenario is absolutely warranted. But, you know, what if this had been a trans girl and would the outrage have been similar? And it scares me to imagine uh, that, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't care as much if it had been a trans person yelled at, because trans folks get yelled at all the time as is, and it's rarely a headline. Do you, do you think that's the case, though, that people would not have cared as much? Uh, unfortunately, like, I think we live in a world where trans people are more and more routinely subjected to, to hate and rhetoric. Uh, I have countless trans friends in my life who've been called 
uh, slurs on a routine basis just for walking to the grocery store. Uh, and so, you know, we have to stand by everyone's right to dignity, and this should never have happened. Uh, but I think that we often extend a little bit more compassion uh, to people who aren't trans, whereas we imagine that trans people should just have to put up with the everyday hate we receive. But how do you feel then about the reaction to this? Because from what I have seen, clearly the vast majority of people are saying, you know what, this should not have happened. Absolutely. And that's been really, really positive to see. It's been incredible to see elected officials, governments, uh, community leaders across the country and around the world denouncing this incident. Uh, But what worries me is what comes next. What happened in Kelowna isn't an isolated instance. We are seeing a staggering rise in anti-trans and anti-queer hate. And so my invitation to every politician who's spoken out is put your money where your mouth is and bring this up in your legislature, not just this specific scenario, but this crisis of rising hate, because we need governments and elected officials to step up before it gets worse. Okay, in what way then? What can they do that would prevent something like this from happening? Uh, so there is a campaign underway right now at www.act4queersafety.ca. It's got over 100 civil society organizations supporting it, and it's calling on the federal government to address rising hate through funding for community organizations, through the appointment of a special representative to address and prevent anti-2SLGI plus hate, and a variety of other mechanisms that the federal government can put in place. But my invitation equally is for provinces and territories to look to what the federal government has already been doing to support queer and trans communities, because they could do more. But while the federal government has stepped up a little bit, provinces and territories have not met them halfway. Right. It does seem like, though, Faye, in this particular case that, uh, you know, everybody who was there did what was appropriate. They moved the track meet. They, you know, protected the kids. Like what else could they have done in that moment? In that situation, absolutely. But, you know, when this happens again and again and when it happens uh, in in other circumstances, we need to make sure that there's training for coaches and teachers. Uh, We need to make sure that there are clear policies to protect the privacy and rights of these young folks, be they cis or trans, when these situations arise. Because as we're seeing in the U.S., this rhetoric is taking hold and we're seeing more and more instances of, of hate targeted at our communities. You know, drag story hours are being protested across the country with parents who are walking in with their kids being called all sorts of horrible things. And so they reacted right in this circumstance. And it's a model we can build from. But we have to put in the work to help develop those policies, train people up and tackle this hate head on. Do you see a willingness to have that happen? I think I think that the federal government is waking up to this. I think some provinces and territories are as well, but I still worry that they're not recognizing the depth of the issue that we're facing. I think a lot of people imagine there's something unique about Canada that makes us different from the U.S., but we've seen increases year over year in hate-motivated police-reported violence against our communities. And so I, I'm hopeful, um, but I, I'm not as optimistic as I'd like to be. And it's, it's pride season. And our, I'm hearing just fear from queer and trans people in my life and from queer organizations that I work with every day that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Really? So you're hearing that even during a month that is supposed to be celebrating pride? You know, just a couple weeks ago, um, the federal government announced uh, a little bit of funds, $1.5 million dollars. Uh, for like 60 plus pride organizations, uh, because we as, as, an, as a movement were uh, bringing forward concerns about rising hate. For the first time, uh, I've heard from pride organizers that weren't sure if they could put on events due to safety considerations. And so there is this, this fear in community and we're seeing 
you know, just uh, yesterday there was a a motel owner in Thunder Bay who was threatened with violence for having a pride flag uh, up just a few days ago. Uh, we or just a couple weeks ago, we saw vandalism uh, of a uh, pride flags in Nova Scotia. And New Brunswick is rolling back fundamental policies and protections for trans students. And so this is taking hold. And while New Brunswick is the first time we've seen a provincial government regressing, uh, my worry is it's the canary in the coal mine and it's going to get worse from here. Okay, so you're feeling on this particular incident that is, okay. this is great, but we need more of this. We need more pushback like this. We need to scale up. You know, queer and trans folks have been sounding the alarm for years. I personally have been subjected uh, to a tsunami after tsunami of hate for being one of few trans people in in the media and in the public eye. Uh, And I think there is a worry that uh, folks think that a statement and a photo during Pride is enough to address this hate. And that's not what we're asking for. We're asking for governments to partner with us to tackle this head on. And it starts by investing in and supporting local queer and trans organizations. Well, Faye, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me on and happy Pride.